I'm going to be putting forward a, a rather radical alternative to the view uh, of uh, Robin Ball, the first speaker, um, questioning whether one really should formulate the laws of nature as local laws of nature. I'm going to argue that actually we have to contemplate the entire universe to formulate a law of nature. Um, and uh, I'll go straight on. I think that goes forward, doesn't it? Uh, don't go t too much worrying about all this. And I think given lack of time, I might jump straight from A to C and then if there is time, go back to B, which is really the justification for my more um, radical uh, views that uh, I'm wanting to put forward. But I'm going to uh, address the questions that go right back to Newton. How on earth do you define time and motion? And Newton chose a particular way, which was challenged immediately, and then it was challenged by Ernst Mach about 130 years ago. Very influentially, it led to Einstein's creation of general relativity. We would not have general relativity without uh, Mach's um, challenge to Newtonian uh, systems. I'll show how a Machian concept of motion can be implemented, and it crucially relies upon the entire universe, which has to be assumed to be uh, really a closed dynamical system. And then I'll show how time and inertial frames of reference emerge from that. Uh, that I'm really going to concentrate on that, because that's really the, the, the heart of the thing. I think I will then probably jump forward and deal with, with C, uh, time without time. Uh, it's been referenced to quantum gravity, um, where there is a mysterious thing called the Wheeler-DeWitt equation, which suggests that time does not exist at all for the quantum universe considered in its totality, that it's just not there at all. Uh, and I want to introduce a notion called time capsules, um, which... Uh, perhaps explains why we could have a sense of the passage of time without it really being there at all. So that's just an overview. Um, so uh, how is motion to be defined? Now, Newton wanted to found the, the laws of motion on the first, uh, his, his, his dynamics on the first law of motion, that a body left to itself will move in a straight line forever at a uniform speed. He could see the stupendous advantage of doing that. But to make any sense of that, he had to assume that there is some fixed space in which you can talk meaningfully about straight lines. So he postulated something like the walls of this room, uh, and un unless there's an earthquake, uh, that does define, they do define a straight line in this room. But um, if they're not there, and if you've just got stars swarming around all over the place, or atoms swarming around all over the place, as was the view of the mechanistic philosophy in those days, that's a very problematic thing to assume that there is that space there, because it's utterly invisible. And so is the time that is meant to be uh, passing uniformly, and to allow you to make that claim. Now, there's an alternative uh, way of defining motion, which crucially involves the entire universe. It's very holistic, uh, and that's what I want to uh, talk about. And if I can get some sense of, of what, why there is an alternative to that, I'll, I'll be happy with, with my efforts this morning. Now, this is very much to do with relativity, but it's very important to... A lot of confusion 
surrounds the word relativity because it's used in two completely different senses. In Einstein, as you've heard today, in, in that nice exposition of special relativity by uh, Ron Moore, the, uh, in Einsteinian relativity, it's about dividing up space and time in different ways. Here's one way you can divide space and time, and here's another way. And time and space are relative to the axes that you lay down on them. It's all to do with laying down axes on something which is meant, believed to be out there, space-time. Uh, now, the Machian meaning of relativity is something completely different. It, of necessity, assumes that you can talk about an instantaneous configuration of the universe, which is like a snapshot. I'll show you a picture of what I mean in a moment. But in this case, relative means that the position of this object is defined relative to all the other objects in that instance. So I've, I've got a one-dimensional universe here. So that's the, uh, the, the, the picture there. Now, when you develop this idea systematically, and you can, and those who want uh, to check out the technical details, you'll find them all on my website, platonia.com. I'm a Platonist of heart and believe in being, <laughs> not really in becoming. Uh, so uh, check out platonia.com and if you want to look at all the details, you'll find it there. But uh, I may say that I, uh, I got uh, a good uh, person who started me off on this. Uh, I started working on this project in 1963, having read this one single sentence of Paul Dirac, who'd arrived at it from trying to quantize general relativity. He'd come across a very remarkable fact which already pointed, I believe, although uh, Dirac himself didn't see it, towards this Machian view. And he said, I'm inclined to believe that four-dimensional symmetry is not a fundamental property of the physical world. Um, I, I won't say that uh, my collaborators and I have managed to confirm that, but I think we're making quite a strong case. Now, what do I mean by an instant of time? Now, an instant of time in this sort of linear view that got established with the Christian, uh, Judaic, and, uh, and uh, Islamic view is, is linear. It's just sort of, it's just a, it's a straight line and a point, an instant of time is one point. There, there's a straight line along there. There's an instant, there's another one, there's another one. Utterly featureless. Now, this is absolute rubbish. Uh, just, just think about it. How do you know in the first place, what time is. Well, I'm here, there's all objects around us, and in fact, there was recently a very interesting article about Amazonian tribes. Uh, you have to go back to, to primitive people like that to get down to the real truth. For them, time is just actually what they see when, they, an instant of time is what they see when they open their eyes. It's the trees and it's the river flowing by and things like that. And that is what it is. And by the way, ontology, the Greek word onta means two things. It means existing things and the present, the present instant. So that's quite thought-provoking. Uh, one shouldn't get carried away by mathematics and wonderful, beautiful, uniform, abstract spaces. They're, they're, fic they're fictions, as Leibniz said. They're dangerous. So by an instant of time, I mean a configuration of the entire universe at one instant. Now, people will scream, you can't say that because of special relativity. Well, I'm 
got Dirac behind me, and if he said we can challenge that, uh, perhaps I'll be allowed to do it too. So if we had a, a universe consisting of, of a certain number of stars or something like this up, up here, depicted here, uh, that is an instant of time. Look at it. Let that sink into your being. Uh, and what is the universe like in this picture? Well, it's like uh, bees swarming in nothing. That's the way you should think about the universe. Mark used the expression, what do we think, where do we get our reference frame, this wonderful reference frame that Minkowski imposed on our intuitions with such brilliance, when the stars begin to swarm in confusion? And if you speed up things, that's exactly what they do. So how are you going to talk about space and time and motion in such a situation? That's what you have to envisage. Now, let me just frighten you with a bit of abstract mathematics called a, fi a principle fiber bundle. But I just want to get uh, just a little bit of an idea of what is involved in this. Now, let us just imagine we have the simplest conceivable universe, which is the consisting that's dynamically non-trivial, which is just three particles in Euclidean space. So I've just got three particles, and in any instance, they form a triangle. Now, if you have a triangle, it's characterized by two things. It's characterized by its shape, which are two angles, and it's characterized by its size. And a moment's reflection will tell you that the shape is vastly more significant than the size. And in fact, if there's just one triangle and that's it, the size has no meaning at all, because there's nothing you can measure it against. Everything that is meaningful in physics is a ratio. There is nothing in physics which has meaning unless it has a ratio. So to say that the size of the universe in one instant has meaning is just nonsense. So a size of a triangle is far less fundamental than its shape. So I've got here now, so the, the possible states of such a universe are, or, and it's also the instance of time, are the possible shapes of, that, of those triangles. So each point here down in what I call the base space or shape space, each point here is a possible shape of my triangle. So I haven't got a linear time or a circular time. I've got a vastly dimensional time because the shapes of triangles, it's a two-dimensional space. And as you go up with more and more particles or to fields, you have an infinite dimensional space. So there's no question of linear or circular time in this picture. The instance of time form an infinite dimensional space. Now, what you can do with a triangle, I'll, I'll have this as a substitute triangle, is that I can move it around anywhere in this room or in Euclidean space as I imagine it. I can move it around and place it anywhere I like. So this is what I, and I can also imagine that its size is changed. I do this with the generators of the Euclidean group, that's translations and rotations, and also the dilatations which are expanding it or contracting it. And that is represented here. Here is one triangle, its shape here, and these are all the ways, this is called a fiber, these are all the ways with which this wonderful thing called the group, some mathematicians say G stands for God or for group, <laughs> it's interchangeable. Uh, 
This is all different ways that I can hold the same triangle in space or imagine that I make it larger or smaller. So each different one is, is going from there to there. Uh, is, is, is going so this is, these are different shapes, and as I go up and down the fiber, I'm just creating different ways that I can think about that triangle, placing it in space. And the fundamental problem of motion, which I may say that Newton understood extremely well, but rather surprisingly, Einstein did not understand as well as Newton, is that there is, a priori, no connection whatsoever between these two fibers. I have one triangle and another triangle with a different shape. I can hold this one anywhere I like, and this other one, here's my other triangle, anywhere I like. And there is no way, as Newton really realized, of saying how much the triangles have changed or where the individual particles have moved unless you invoke and say that there is some absolute space in which they fit. But that's not the only way that you can do it. Now, uh, there is in, in, in the fiber bundle theory, they talk about group-induced vertical change, which is regarded as fictitious. My triangle doesn't change as I move it around like this. That's a fictitious change. But if I change it into a different triangle, here's a different one, that's a real change. And the central problem in mathematics that was resolved by the theory of principal fiber bundles, uh, the concept was introduced in the 50s by a mathematician called Erisman, is how do you say, what is the true change, which is called the horizontal change? That's the fundamental problem. So, let's go on. Now, let me just, uh, this is an exercise in getting rid of redundant and potentially uh, misleading structure. The standard picture for Newtonian dynamics is that you have what is called a configuration space. This was introduced by Lagrange and made very precise by Hertz uh, about 120 years ago. Now, if we're just talking about one object moving in this room, we can take the floor of the room as being the configuration space. This is a two-dimensional configuration space, and here am I walking, literally walking across the floor of the room. That's the representation of me, relies heavily on the walls of the room and the floor. Then there is this mysterious thing, time, it's totally invisible, which is meant to increase into the future. And as I walk along the floor, time is going forwards, and this is me going across the room, and time is going upwards. Right, now let's get rid of time, because it's totally non-existent, it just ain't there. The only thing is the configurations, the shapes, the configurations. Now the first thing, we can get rid of time very easily, we just cut that out, and we say all that exists is the floor of the room. And then the his everything that's relevant about me is my history walking across the room, is the path I take. It's whether I take this one or whether I take this one. That's a different path. That's something objectively different. Well, it's not objectively different if there's only the invisible floor there. It is objectively different if we take into account you lot. And you are crucial. That's what's saying that this path is different from that one. Okay? That's, that's very fundamental. And so, so once more, so now when we go down to the three-particle system, my, my, my shape space, or this could be the entire universe, the instantaneous shapes of the universe, 
we, we get to the situation where really the objective reality is that there's just a curve in shape space. The shape of the universe is changing. So in my triangle picture, I have one triangle, then another, then another, and then another. That's it. Okay? That's, that's how we should think about motion. By the way, we should think about time. We're not meant to stop, sorry. Five parts in box twelve. Okay, very good. Thank you. Right. Next picture. Now, what is the problem? Now, there's a Poincaré who's been mentioned already. In 1902, did a fabulous analysis of Newtonian mechanics and came up with an extremely precise identification of a defect in Newtonian mechanics. Now, let me just make one observation. Both uh, Mach was a very intuitive thinker and just said some very sort of pregnant remarks about Newtonian mechanics and its defects, uh, its conceptual defects. Einstein surprisingly never tried to make Mach's comments precise and implement Mach's ideas directly. He went about creating general relativity in a very indirect way. And that has led to a huge amount of confusion about this issue. It's absolutely vast, the confusion. But Poincaré came up with something very, very precise. And it's the following uh, statement. Poincaré said, I'll take it in its simplest terms, suppose I have a three-body system, and at one instant I know the separations between the particles, just the separations between the particles. So I'll allow that he, he didn't take out the scale, he, he left the size in. He says, I know in one instant the size of that triangle, and at, or the, sh the, the, the triangle, I know the triangle, and at another instant I know how the triangle has changed a little bit. This gives me, in more precise terms, it gives me the separations, which are the R, A, B, and it gives me the rates of change. He assumed time and a length scale as being something given absolutely, but not a space in which they move. And he asks, given that information, given that I'm totally convinced that motion is relative, I think I should be able to predict the future uniquely given that data, because that's all that's observable. And does Newtonian theory do that for me? And it's long been a favorite game of mine to ask really distinguished physicists, theoretical physicists, including Nobel Prize winners, whether Newtonian theory can predict the future on the basis of that data. They have never thought of that question, and they haven't the remotest idea how to begin to answer it. <laughs> I'd like to ask you if there's anyone here in the audience who knows the answer, because it's quite interesting. It just shows how little people know about what's happening in dynamics. The answer is it, Newtonian theory does not predict the future on that basis. The reason is very simple. These are my two triangles. If I rotate one respect to the other, it does not change that. There's a slight difference in shape, so this is picked up. That's objective, the difference in shape. But if I change my hand's position relative to each other, I change the angular momentum in the system. And that has profound consequences in Newtonian theory for the evolution you get completely different evolutions depending on the angular momentum in the system. And 
If you have only this information, you don't have access to it. And that is the precise defect in Newtonian mechanics which Poincaré identified in 1902. Not a single scientist picked it up. And then, the ideal then, which Poincaré hinted at, but gave up in the face of the fact that there is angular momentum in the solar system, is to devise a mechanical system where that information will be sufficient to predict the future. Okay? So that's what Mach's principle is. It should be formulated in that way. Now, the way we're going to do that is to define a distance between, in the simple case of, 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 of triangles, I'm going to define a distance between shapes of triangles, or leaving out the size issue for the moment, let's just allow a size. I'm going to define a distance between two triangles. That is, a distance in this space down here between two triangles which are nearly the same but not identical. This is going to define what is called a metric or a distance. And once I know the distance in a landscape, I can find the shortest distance between any two points. And then, I can then start at a point in that landscape and, and, and a, a complete geodesic, as it's called, a shortest path, is determined by a point where I stand in the landscape and a direction. It's like being in, 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 in a park somewhere and there's a lovely footpath. You're at the start of the footpath and there's a direction in which it goes. And you can also walk along it at different speeds. Now that's an issue about whether you allow something like time or not in the scheme. But those are those two possibilities. So what we need to do is to define a distance between nearly similar uh, configurations of the universe. And that's done quite easily. I think I've got it on the next slide. Yes, I have. I take my first triangle, the blue one, and I've got a red one, which is different. And I just place it down in a completely arbitrary position. And remember that that defect in Newtonian mechanics arises because as I move the second triangle, the, r the red one, around relative to the blue one, I change the angular momentum every time I do it. So it's that freedom of the Euclidean generators that creates the problem in Newtonian mechanics. And I'm going to use exactly the same freedom to get rid of it. Because I'm going to move, I'm going to put it down in an arbitrary position like that, this is the distance in this imaginary space in which I've put my triangles. That's the distance between particle one in the two positions, in the, for the two shapes of the triangles. That's between two, and that's between the two positions for three. So I can write down this quantity here. I need a square root because a distance must always have a square root, and that gets rid of time for me. That, that, that square root is essential to get rid of my time, to have just a metric on the space there. Don't worry about this for a minute here. That's, 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 that's a nice thing. These are the masses of the particles, which I assume. And then I just take those little delta x's, those little distances here, delta xa, 
and I take the scalar product with itself, which is just actually the square of the length. So these are the squares of these lengths that I've created completely arbitrarily. I add up the squares of the length, I multiply it by something here which I'll talk about later, uh, and then I take the square root of it. And then comes the key thing. I now use my generators of Euclidean translations and rotations to move the red triangle relative to the blue until I find the unique minimum of this quantity. It's positive definite, it has a unique minimum, and I say, lo and behold, that's my distance between those two triangles. And I assert that that is actually the solution to the problem of motion. It is the key inner core of general relativity, understood, represented in this way. This is what general relativity does. It was completely hidden when Einstein created general relativity because he didn't explicitly try to implement Muff's ideas, and he was very lucky that the mathematicians had created a thing called the Ricci tensor about uh, 15 years before he needed it. And all of this structure is sitting inside that Ricci tensor, which was completely unknown to Einstein. And you need a dynamical analysis of general relativity where you put it in this picture to bring that inner core structure out. But that, when general relativity is considered as a dynamical theory, which is what led Dirac to his thing, because quantum mechanics is about converting classical mechanics or mechanical systems into quantum theories. And in that, you need positions and momenta. You need configurations. You need the classical, the, the key concepts of mechanics. You don't need space-time. And Dirac found to his utter amazement that when he looked, when he tried to make general relativity into a Hamiltonian theory which met what he needed in, 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 in uh, to quantize gravity, that lo and behold, that dynamical structure was already sitting there within general relativity. It was there. He didn't find it in this way, but he found, it, he found the evidence for it. And he was absolutely amazed by it and led him to this incredible counter-revolutionary claim that four-dimensional symmetry is not a fundamental property of the physical world. And that's the reason why this was hidden for so long, uh, that, that, that Einstein took over mathematics ready-made. So that's really all you need to solve the problem of motion. Get rid of time, which is done by a square root there, and do best matching. And all of the rest, when you're considering the whole universe, is just a variation on that theme. Now, let me just give you the mathematics of it to show you there. So you, you have a, an action principle. Those who are not familiar with mathematics just go to sleep and don't worry about it. Um, there's the square root. This is a constant quantity, which after the event will turn out to be what people think is the total energy of the system. This V is the potential energy. This is just an arbitrary parameter which is labeling my curve. Here's my curve going along like that, and I just put an arbitrary parameter which must increase monotonically as I go along. That's not to be confused with time. It's just a parameter which labels points. So it appears there, but it also appears there quadratically, 
under square root, so the d lambdas cancel out, so it is completely independent of that. It's what mathematicians call reparameterization invariance. So here's, this was essentially, if you take out those d lambdas, that was that thing that I was minimizing back down here. This, this is the real key thing. It's not that convenient mathematical way of just adding a lambda. That's just for computational convenience. So that's the Lagrangian, Lagran the action, and here's the Lagrangian in there. And here are the equations of motion that you get. They look rather complicated. They've got this very characteristic quantity here. Now, it was said that uh, time is chosen to make the laws of motion simple. Now, simplicity is a slippery thing, but here at least it's obvious what to do. You just, this lambda is arbitrary, and it's sitting in here, so you choose lambda so that this thing is 1, and you can always do that. So that becomes 1, and then I'm going to call that special lambda that I've chosen t, because then lo and behold, you get Newton's second law. You've recovered Newton's second law. Now, here's this. Now, I'm going to actually tell you explicitly what dt is. If you write that out, you get this expression here. There's a square root again. There's all the masses of the particles in the universe. Now, here we can really have 10 to the 80 particles in the universe. And here are the little dx's that they move in that best-matched position. I don't know whether I actually even said the word best-matching. Yes, this is best-matched here. When you get that position that minimizes this quantity here, then I call those the best-matched positions. I didn't say that. So I put in those best-matched positions there. These are the best-matched positions. Which, by the way, let me just say what they do. In those best-matched positions, effectively, you're picking up Newtonian theory with vanishing angular momentum. Vanishing angular momentum. So this is, this is what you get, and it's divided by this quantity here. Now, this is a completely explicit realization of Mach's statement. This is, a, this, is a, this is often quoted. Einstein, in his obituary of Mach, called it a gem. It is utterly impossible to measure the changes of things by time. Quite the contrary, time is an abstraction at which we arrive from the changes of things. Now, this is a doubly holistic notion of time for two reasons. First of all, it involves every single object in the universe. If that ain't holistic, I don't know what is. And secondly, it involves this process of best matching, which is equally holistic, because I've got to do it for every single thing in, in the universe. And out of this extremely holistic process emerges, believe it or not, in the frame of reference defined, I start with one configuration, I best match the second one into it. Oh, I've, I've got a diagram for it, I've forgotten. This is how Newtonian space-time emerges out of this picture. My best matching enables me to start with one configuration, which is my starting point, and does not... I can move that configuration anywhere I like around an imagined space. Then I put my second one in the best matched position on top of it, and so all the way through up to the crack of doom. 
So that's horizontal stacking, and then I put the vertical separation between the things with this emergent time that I've got out there. And then I've recovered in this framework, which I've created by the intrinsic changes of what is happening to the system, I've recovered exactly the Newtonian framework in which his laws hold exactly and his first law of motion holds. And that first law of motion, if you stop and think about it, is the beginning of reductionism in, in the natural sciences. The whole idea of reductionism is we start with utterly simple local laws and then we build up from that. And what this shows is that with a high degree of probability, I will actually stick myself up, neck out and say it is just wrong. The whole universe is, is very, very holistic and this is a creation of us neglecting the entire effect of the whole universe. It's just a completely false way of looking at it. We've closed our eyes, we're just looking at the table and the little bit of chalk on there and we haven't opened our eyes and looked at the whole great huge universe out there, what is going. Just open your eyes. Um, let me just make one remark about Robin's talk this morning. Uh, before the cesium clock was introduced, the standard of time was called ephemeris time. When the astronomers realized the rotation of the Earth was lousy, they introduced ephemeris time, which is actually based on the assumption that the solar system is an isolated dynamical system which obeys Newton's laws with small corrections for general relativity. And the expression for ephemeris time is then exactly that. That was the standard of time before the atomic clocks came in. It took them an awful long time to abandon the rotation of the Earth as the standard. But ephemeris time was essentially that for I'm not quite sure how many years, about a decade or so, something like that. Um, that's one thing. <laughs> Let me also make one other remark, if I may. A clock is not the vibration of a single atom. Robin, your diagram showed a chunky great cesium beam clock. And if any of those, it has cavities and things like that. If you get any of the atoms in those cavities in the wrong place, the clock tells the wrong time. The time today is told by a system of something like 100 atomic clocks distributed over the Earth, of which 10 are super clocks, but all the rest are needed. They have to take into account continental drift and all sorts of things like that. To make sure they've got that involved, they are actually having to use the distant quasars. So the distant quasars in the universe are coming into this fantastic standard of time that we have today. So time is a concept which involves the whole universe. And Poincaré in 1898 wrote a paper called The Measure of Time in which he referred to two fundamental problems to do with time. One was the definition of duration and the other was the definition of simultaneity. And he said the second problem has not been recognized so much as the first, but it is a very real problem. And in connection with the problem of duration, he anticipated this expression, although he didn't write it out explicitly, he said that you have to take into account the motion of Sirius. Now you have to check against the poles of the quasars. So Poincaré didn't know what he was talking about. He was a great analyzer. He wasn't so daring as Einstein. He was very conservative, Poincaré. 
but he certainly was good on his analysis. Uh, so, and an interesting thing too, Einstein, of course, is absolutely brilliant in, problem in solving the problem of simultaneity. I guess we'll hear something about it from Harvey in the last talk today. But interestingly, if you look at Einstein, I've looked through his letters, his papers. I don't think he ever once seriously addressed the problem of duration. What is the definition of duration? Also, in the famous relativity paper, he assumed as given inertial frames of reference. Quite interesting. And one place Einstein gives the definition of a clock, and he doesn't give a good definition of a clock. It's actually, I would say, a wrong one. Uh, he doesn't realize, he assumes you've got to have a cyclic system. But there's nothing cyclic in this at all. There's nothing cyclic in the motion of the, of the solar system, which was used for 10 years to give the official standard of time on the Earth. There's nothing cyclic in the motions in the solar system. So you don't need a cyclic process. Einstein thought you did. It's not necessary. So, um, when did we say five parts, I should stop? Yeah, okay. Um, let me just then, I'll, I'll, I'll go to completely change. I won't attempt to go any further on, on, uh, on this line of thought if with my beating. Let me just say that when you take a notion of time like this, and I said to you, it is deeply embedded in general relativity, and you apply the most basic ideas of quantum mechanics to such a system, instead of getting the time-dependent Schrodinger equation, which both the speakers chose this morning, I think, wasn't it? Uh, you get the time-independent Schrodinger equation, which describes stationary states. Let me just make one or two observations about that. Schrodinger first discovered his time-independent Schrodinger equation, it's only about six months later that he found the one with the time dependence in it. And what the time independent Schrodinger equation does, and I believe it is absolutely colossal what it does, and it's underappreciated. The great problem from the earliest thinkers was to explain the shapes, the wonderful shapes of things we see in the world all around us. And what the time-independent Schrodinger equation does is explain the shapes of atoms and molecules. It explains why the water molecule is banana-shaped and things like that. It gives... It doesn't involve the time at all, and it gives probabilities for shapes of the system. And it does it using Schrodinger's equation, typical quantum mechanical properties like where integrability of the wave function or self-adjointness of the Hamiltonian operator. And what the... And, and in 1967, uh, Bryce DeWitt, who said he only found that damned equation to get John Wheeler off his back, um, arrived at this equation which, which suggests that the quantum mechanics of the universe just gives you probabilities for configurations of the universe, period. So those, it's probabilities for those instants of time, as I defined them in, in, in the start there. Um, and how on earth do you make any sense of that? Um, now, there's also been a lot of talk in, in, in uh, discussion about the second law of thermodynamics and the increase of entropy in the arrow of time. There are two huge 
asymmetries, I would say, sitting around that we have to contend with. One of them is extremely well known. That's ultimately the asymmetry between birth and death, which is what the second law of thermodynamics is all about. But there's another asymmetry, which um, I think, I don't know whether anybody had ever noticed it, um, but it hit me uh, like a flash of lightning 20 years ago. Most fundamental concept, I believe, is, is the configuration space or the shape space. Now, it's very interesting. A shape space is highly structured and it has a, always has a uniquely distinguished point. Uh, if you allow scale, the distinguished point is where everything is sitting on top of each other. It's called the central solution in the unbodied problem. And it's a model for the Big Bang. So as I like to say, the Big Bang is not in the past. It's somewhere else in the configuration space. If you allow scale in your theory, it's where everything is sitting on top of each other. If you don't allow scale in, it's even more interesting. It's the most uniform state configuration that the system can have. And for the three-body problem, it's the equilateral triangle for any mass. So this is a very rich structure. So there is, in, in any shapes, in any configuration space, any shape space like this, any realistic one that you might choose to describe the universe, there is always what I call an alpha, a point alpha, a distinguished, uniquely distinguished configuration, which is more, particularly in this shape space, which is more uniform than any other that you can find. And there's no omega. You can have infinitely rich structures of, of the universe. Completely possible. Now, we have the situation, I've got about two minutes. Uh, uh, we have a situation where uh, if we take Bryce DeWitt seriously, uh, we just have probabilities for different configurations. Now, let me just remind you of deep time and what the geologists discovered. The geologists came to the conclusion that the Earth must have a very long history by looking at the structure of rocks and fossils, all in one single configuration. So if I go back once more to my picture, you can't get any interesting structures in that, but give me 10 to the 80 particles. I can have all sorts of interesting structure here and here. And essentially, the conclusion that deep time must be real and that the Earth must have a very ancient history came from the correlations between structures in the Earth. And those structures have essentially are unchanged. So science is not really about setting up experiments in the past and checking the outcomes now. It's, it's about comparing structures now. One structure we call the record of setting up the experiment and the other one is the outcome. So we're putting the, the record, what we call the record of the setting up of the experiment next to the outcome. And it's from that that we make all our conclusions. That is the reality of the whole of science from cosmology through to molecular biology to history, to everything. Why do we believe Henry VIII had six wives? Because umpteen documents tell us. There's one or two that don't agree with that, but we discount them, and we have reasonably good reason for it. The past is a deduction from the present, 
and it's done by means of these very special configurations which I call time capsules, not in the sense of something deliberately put in the foundations of a house for somebody to find two centuries later. It's a very structured configuration and my conjecture is that ultimately it's the asymmetry of the configuration space with a timeless quantum mechanics which puts a high probability on time capsules which is why I'm standing in front of you here. Thank you.